For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, let's go to Virginia. You know, in this election year, we're doing the thing where we actually have this crazy idea where when something happens in a state, we go talk to people about what's going on in that state. We don't need the national narrative. Let's find out what's really going on. I uh, had a little election in Virginia recently. May have heard of it. Uh, Glenn Youngkin came into power. Let's go to Virginia. Uh, Lillian Tara, another great Young Voices contributor. We do love having them on so also happens to be a UVA student, one of those Yahoo type people. And I'm not saying that is derogatory for those who don't know. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing lovely. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. And we won't even hold it against you that you're from the wrong Virginia. Um, appreciate your time today. Uh, okay. It's been a little bit uh, for a variety of reasons. One is it's Virginia and DC at Jay's, so it gets extra attention. Uh, the Glenn Youngkin Virginia election got a lot of coverage. He's been in office for a while. Uh, let's just kind of recap for a second what's been going on in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of press when he came into office. He had a flurry of activity as soon as he got into office. It's been a couple of months. Where are we at with Virginia and Glenn Youngkin, especially when it comes to policies like education, which really drove his campaign? Yeah, so uh, Glenn Youngkin definitely has continued to make good on on several of his promises. The mask mandates have been the most controversial one recently, but uh, he did put in an executive order preventing mask mandates in K through 12 schools, which was rejected by several of the major counties, Fairfax, my home county being one of them. But as we're seeing the pandemic start to die down, naturally, people, it's becoming less of a contentious issue. And that was a big deal for him coming in. Um, and of course, we have the other elements of the education controversies that aren't going to go away anytime soon. That would be critical race theory, which I explained about in my piece, and that would be um, a number of there was one specific issue in regards to uh, sexual assault in Loudoun County, which kind of pitted administrators against parents, which I also talk about briefly. So there's been a couple issues and a lot of them pit parents against the education system. And that's been a big issue that I've been looking into. Now, we've been talking about on our program and covering it um, just out of the abstract of the actual policies. All this is not good because what we really need to have is parents and the school system and the students and the teachers, those all need to be working in partnership. It doesn't look like that partnership is anywhere closer to getting fixed right now because it still seems really adversarial. As you looked at Virginia, because again, this was just very high profile recently, so it's kind of a good test bed looking at it now. What do you think we could do to actually repair that relationship? I know we got policies. I know they're trying to do certain things. Uh, the, the COVID stuff's getting rescinded. That'll take hopefully some of the pressure off. I think that just revealed fissures that were already there. 
What do you think they can do to actually have some partnership here? Because if the parents and the teachers and the students aren't all working together, this isn't going to work regardless of what policy we have, is it? Right. And I think the underlying issue with education, which is the battleground for many of these policies, because children are a very sensitive issue, but in general, with any government policies that it inherently forces conformity, right? And in education, it forces conformity in terms of what is being taught to students, how it's being taught, which students are being taught what. And this is an underlying issue. It's not unique to education. And quite frankly, the only way I see us addressing it is just introducing more flexibility to the system, which is difficult when there are special interests growing as the funding towards education grows. And that is why I am a huge advocate of charter schools or really anything that increases the flexibility for local agents to make decisions in regards to the children's education because parents are just so different and they'll they'll never agree 100% and you'll always have people push to the margins and you'll always have controversies like masks or how much administrators should be involved in hiding things from parents and um, now uh, COVID as well. Now we've had things like the mask mandate, which has been loud. It's been voiced for us, but then there's been other things that are really dangerous and ugly that kind of almost make that look pale in comparison. You talked about London County. Uh, you've talked about uh, sexual uh, assault and issues like this in the school system. There's been incidences of abuse. That's not just for you. I know down uh, our way where the radio portion of this program comes out, the Wilmington area, case after case after case of the school system and teachers being abusive to students and things like this. Does the current environment, my fear is where there's so much mistrust and there's all that lack of communication we're talking about, things that are really, really important and not like these policy issues aren't but people that are abusers, people that are untoward individuals, they can use that kind of a scenario to really do some really wicked, evil stuff. And the way the system is right now and the way the conversation is, nobody's really prepared to deal with it because everything else has been blown up into this really bad confrontational stuff. And then something that we need to be confrontational happens and folks really don't know what to really do with it. And it doesn't get handled really well, does it? Yeah, I think I think the, the question that's come to mind, and I'm going to bring up one of the most famous uh, McAuliffe uh, blips, I think, which is that he said something along the lines of, I don't think parents should be telling teachers what how to teach. And what that really shows is that we've gotten to a point where the public education system is so widespread, bloated, mandatory, et cetera, et cetera, that we're forgetting who employs who. And teachers are ultimately, in my view at least, there to serve the parents, right? This is a system about meeting the needs of the parents. But once teachers become, for example, highly licensed, they're required to be highly licensed, let's say, at least on paper, uh, they are supposedly very specialized and they're taught that they have a monopoly on the knowledge on how to teach children, they tend to develop an authority in this regard. And that creates a lot of friction between them and parents that's already there based on differences in people's uh, teaching methods. And once you have this, this authority group that believes that they know uniquely how to teach children based on some special academic knowledge, that doesn't run well and that doesn't fly well with parents who think that they know the children best, regardless of what an education degree might might say. And this is an issue with any big bureaucratic institution, um, especially one that has very rigid procedures for getting to the top that doesn't allow for flexibility in judging the quality of an individual teacher. Part of that is, you know, issues with unions and all that. Um, and it's 
something that I, I think would help a lot is just to loosen up that. And that would restore more faith on the parents' part because they think that they have more agency in it. Right now, what I see is that the Youngkin voters think that they're having their authority over their most important part of their life being taken away from them by an institution. And to, in in some way, deinstitutionalize education would be to make it more malleable and let parents consequently have a, have a greater say, uh, especially when things like sexual assault or these scandals come up where it seems like it's pitting the entire system against the entire parent base and it splits them into two. Right. Talking to Lillian Tara. All right. The pushback on that, of course, is a lot of these parents showed up at school boards and go, nobody on the school board agrees with me. And some folks rightly pointed out was like, well, yeah, because this is the first time you've been here. All of a sudden we're having a crisis and now everybody's showing up and paying attention to these issues. This stuff didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a sequence. So while parents are rightfully upset at some of the things like the McAuliffe comment, which was just horrible about saying parents shouldn't have it, you know, of course, nobody really believes that, but it's a horrible thing to say. But actions speak louder than words. The truth is there's a lot of parents and a lot of before this current pressing crisis, they didn't pay a lot of attention and they weren't involved in their meetings and this sort of thing. So the blame has to go to them as well, does it not? Yes, absolutely. I think it's just a part of a, in, in some ways, it's not anybody's fault. It's just a natural progression towards outsourcing everything to state agents, let's say, the state being one of them, or the state education system being one of them. And I, that, I think, requires some controversy, such as the mask or such as critical race theory, let's say, to get people rethinking and, and realizing that they maybe should have greater say in their children's education, and they need to be responsible for that and they need to make the first step. So certainly a lot of parents have been perfectly happy to, to outsource. Many of them are just too busy. Many of them assume that the teachers know best themselves. And I think what we're realizing is that they may necessarily not. And even parents who believed in the past that this was the case may start to realize that having those credentials doesn't guarantee the well-being of their children, let's say, at least by their terms. Yeah, we're talking to Lillian Tara, another great Young Voices contributor, talking a little bit about Virginia uh, education. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about that after the break. Might bring up a little bit of economics, something she occasionally likes to talk about from time to time. More with Lillian Tara right after this on Mar Hertel. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're talking to our friend Lillian Tara, another great Young Voices contributor, talking a little bit of Virginia. Okay, you are an uh, economics person. Uh, anytime we talk about education and anytime we talk about education controversies, we got to talk about the money, though, because we all know that the the predominant thing to try to fix education in America is let's throw more money at it. When it comes to these issues of trust, when it comes to issues of policy, though, uh, money's not going to fix this. Hiring more teachers isn't going to fix this. You talked about flexibility being important to something we need to put into the system, but this is a system that's shown itself to be, of all things, the least flexible. Is there a practical way you can see to get into this other than maybe they're going to have to address it as a funding mechanism? They're going to have to address it as a training mechanism. What do you see that practically they can try to do some flexibility in what has become a really, really big bureaucratic nightmare in the U.S. education system? Oh, well, I think there's never been a government program that that wouldn't be perfect or improved with with extra funding. I think the issue is that the the systems that are set up 
and how the money is used are always going to waste it. And so I'm going to give a couple examples. Uh, one of them would be uh, how teachers are hired and fired. So in a lot of districts, uh, especially thanks to union interests, what we see is that teachers get pay, pay rises based on seniority and they get them as they age. That in no way guarantees competence. And there is no room for local principals, let's say, to hire and fire on the basis of competence alone because you have all these state and uh, local licensing laws, for example. And these serve as barriers to entry for perfectly good teachers otherwise. And this is an example that I always say that I find to be very wrong in terms of how hiring is, which is the fact that a doctor can't walk into a high school and ask to teach a biology course and be hired for that because he doesn't have a license for teaching it is an example of how that requirement is weeding out some of the best teachers because you don't need a teaching degree to be competent and, and competent in teaching a subject that you're clearly good at professionally. Um, and reducing those barriers would open up the field for a lot of wonderful teachers from tradition, untraditional avenues that we haven't considered before. And I think that is des des desperately needed. You mentioned in your writing, there was three uh, executive orders that Glenn Youngkin uh, issued pretty much on day one, give or take. We talked about a couple of them already, uh, but one of the other ones, uh, when you're talking about installing confidence in the school system, parents are talking about they want more transparency. Well, one thing that got pointed out was with, and even before COVID, but COVID really pushed this forward, Things like syllabuses, things like lessons plan, almost all school systems now have some sort of an online system, whether it's PowerSchool, Blackboard, uh, Ingenuity, there's a couple of different ones. Almost all of them have some kind of online thing. Kind of some of the argument on that was, well, that's trending that way anyway. Is that sort of stuff necessary to actually be put into law or is that infringing onto the teachers? Uh, is there such a thing as too much in-classroom interference from the outside? I know parents have a right for their children, but at the same time, they aren't professional educators. We do need to give the teachers a little bit of room to breathe here as well, don't we? Sure, and I think actually many parents would agree with you in that most parents have no interest in micromanaging things like Blackboard or relatively uncontroversial means of delivering education, let's say. And I think the greatest controversy has been of substance and that would be more political issues. I think up till now, I've, I've rarely seen a teacher. I think the issue with COVID was that some students were uh, unhappy being kept at home. Some would rather have been kept at home. And that was the political element of COVID and not really the educational side of things. So yeah, I think many would, would agree with you on that. Let's talk about that for just a second because again, your background is in economics. That's where you like. Um, Economically, I, I know I wrote about it when you have the schools completely shut down and you have, you know, parents and teachers and students all in the same boat where they can't go into a school, but they still had to go to the grocery store together. They still had to do other things together that that weighs on the economy in a weird way because that gets into people's mindsets, because I know I wrote about it. You know, the shopping centers right across from where the grade school and the high school is and all the same people. They're not allowed to go in the school, but they're all at the grocery store right across the street. That sort of a mentality, that gets into the economy a little bit, doesn't it, when you just break a routine like going to school every day or uh, a lot of parents that were maybe part-time workers while their kids are in school, now they got to be home all the time, the child care stuff. We, we're back away from it a little bit. I think the way schools and education and the school shutdown was really one of the real drivers of the economic uncertainty that didn't get talked about because when the kids aren't in schools, because let's call it, call it what it is, education is a giant daycare program for a lot of kids. 
um, that's a massive disruption to the economy. And I don't think we talked about it enough because when the parents don't have certainty about their child care and their children, there's just no way they're economically going to be spending like they normally are, are they? No, and that's a really, really good point because ultimately education serves two functions. One is education, perhaps in quotes, and the second is glorified daycare. And right now, as a society, we're at the point where the norm is both parents working and sending their kids to school. And at this point, it makes sense to put your kids somewhere, as long as they're not being actively harmed, it's better than keeping them home because parents aren't comfortable or qualified, supposedly, or interested in homeschooling. And I think this is actually very interesting because we should be looking at alternatives in terms of where kids could go other than um, the traditional school systems, because they have to be somewhere while their parents work. And so we have to recognize that this isn't just an issue about how kids are being taught, but how that's benefiting the parents. And so this is just as much a parent issue as it is the children. In many cases, people don't even care so much about the education uh, as they do the fact that the kids are being occupied for eight hours a day. Uh, And so, yes, remembering that parents have their own needs in this regard is is super, super important. And they should be talking about the struggles that they have and and how they, they feel that their kids should be taken care of while they're working or if they'd be comfortable working less. Yeah, talking about it. Yeah, t- talking to Lillian Tower. Uh, the other end of that spectrum, though, we found out during the COVID pandemic, and it didn't get talked about a lot, but it showed up in the data a lot to people to pay attention to it. The other end of the spectrum, the children who don't have two parents, some of them don't have one parent, uh, disaffected kids, underprivileged communities, minority groups. There was a lot of kids that got really lost in the shuffle when schools shut down. I... It, it's it's a little upsetting to me because we talk about online school and things like that. It's like, yeah, that works great. They talk about, well, you can always homeschool your kid if you don't. Most parents aren't equipped to do that. I'm a I'm a fan. Look, if you can homeschool your kids, God bless. That's a you know there that there's a lot that goes into that if you're doing it right. Most people can't do that. It's, I think that's always going to be a small percentage. But when you look at the students that got left behind and they and some of them have just disappeared from the school system and still not come back. Doesn't to me, this says that when we look at education, it needs to be an all of the above type thing, not just a one or two solution thing, because we found out with the pressure of this on with these disadvantaged kids, kids with different parenting situations, one size fits all does not work in education. And I think that's a lesson out of this pandemic we need to take of, hey, when we're talking about like school choice and stuff, it's not just a matter of giving certain people a choice. It's about having an all of the above policy that best benefits children in education. Yeah, definitely. I think what I what I love as about markets as a as a free market type person is that they're incredibly versatile and very very adaptive to local needs based on local information. And this is something that is incredibly important in education because the local agent is the teacher working with that individual child. And with this element of personality, you just don't have something that can be seen from a state bureaucrat's perspective. And this is why I'm a big advocate of say charter schools. But one of the issues is that as soon as you bring in monetary issues, let's say, or you say that charter schools are are monetarily more effective, you get charges of, well, you're trying, oh, you care about profit more about our children or any amount of money is worth it if our children are being educated. The first response is, well, they're not. And the second is, so money does matter. And it's important to realize that when systems are doing more with less money, it's reflective of a general efficiency in terms of recognizing needs and addressing them. And that is greater than just profit. That's more about 
how students are having their needs met. But let's just go there with you because I know we were talking about it because you're, you're an economist at heart. People get icky when they talk about education and money. They just do. They, it, they don't feel like it doesn't feel right to them because like, oh, no, it's education. It's important. We shouldn't put that with money. But the truth is, if you're going to properly study things like economics, it's, it's figuring out how things work in a practical way, even though there's all this theory and all these big words and all this math that I really don't understand because I was never good at math because I was kind of a goof off in school and I never learned how to do all that finding X stuff. But that goes to the point of we, we want to talk about education like it's this unicorn farm where we go and pick out our unicorn and ride it to success. And that's not how it works. It's got to be practically applied at some point. And economic principles, market kind of principles, say this works, this doesn't work because we can follow the money. And the money is almost always tells you the truth because, you know, money don't care. It's just the figures are what the figures are. Wouldn't we do better having some not for profit, not for the things like people would say derogatory, but some principles of like, hey, better stewardship of our funding, better stewardship of our money and better accountability of this giant government organization called Public Education in America. That would be probably a healthier way of looking at it than just making it this giant federal jobs program and daycare center that it's kind of become um, de facto for because of, let's just call it what it is, neglect and it's treated like a potted plant. The emotional issue is a big one, not only in education, but in any policy where people feel entitled to a certain service or good. It's how could you how could you ever discuss costs in the world of healthcare? How could you ever discuss costs in the world of education? There are things more important than money. But my first response is that I don't think economics is about money at all. And I think most economists would agree with me on this. Money is just a way of communicating in the market, let's say. But it's it's a method of solving issues of scarcity. And there are scarce resources and there are competing interests for those scarce resources. And we can apply this way of thinking to education, not monetarily at all. Students have different interests. The attention of teachers, the expertise of teachers is limited. How are we going to best divide up the collective wisdom of society to address the competing interests of many different individual students? And it's a view of society that inherently accounts for diversity of needs and wants. And I think that's why it's best suited for dealing with issues of conflict that arise when these interests and wants compete. And this is something I advocate for. So I do think getting, it's, it's hard because when people don't study economics from the pedantic perspective, they think of it as that money and greedy and capitalistic domain where it, has, it should have nothing to do with our children but rephrasing it as a way of differing needs, not monetary needs, differing special needs for children or minority children or uh, students who work better at home, students who work better in school and parents know this. And so by appealing to their differences and understanding that they would appreciate the versatility themselves, we can get them on board for more flexibility. And I think parents are generally on board with having more choice. And this is a very politicized issue on the teaching end and on the union end, especially. Yeah. Lillian Tara, that's great stuff. That's a good answer to a really, really hard question. Good job. Uh, appreciate having you on the program today. Let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, where you're writing, what you got going on, um, how in the world it is that you come to be studying things like Chinese and Persian languages and all this amazing stuff up there in the house that Thomas Jefferson built. Let folks know how they can follow you going forward until we see you on the program again. 
Yeah, so I very recently uh, just made a Twitter, so that would be Liltara underscore X, which I believe you'll have linked as well. Um, and my op-ed in the Roanoke Times was on charter schools, and I will be hopefully on the show in the future. And uh, yes, I'm studying Chinese and Persian, but very much into economic history, um, politics and all that. So most of my work in the future will be in that domain. Yeah, uh, speaking Chinese comes in very handy in global economics because that is going to be the global economic issue going forward. We can't even talk about Russia and Ukraine without talking China, so that's going to come in handy. You can come back and explain it to me like I'm five because I need those things explained to me. Look forward to seeing you again, and we'll talk soon, my friend. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.